So, Mike, right. if you could just start by telling us a little bit about yourself, uh, empowerment, um, and how you sort of became involved with the organisation. Thank you. Well, uh, I was born and raised in Blackpool on the Fowl Coast. Uh, believe it or not, I'm 51 years old, so I was born in never, 1972. Never. <laughs> so I know that, that causes quite a shock. It's most people, but um, so Blackpool is very much in my in my DNA. Uh, I love the community. Uh, I love this coastal town. I also feel very passionate about it. Very often, when people disparage it or talk uh, yeah. in, in very negative terms about a town, is that I want to kind of tell a different story story of hope, story of change, and an amazing, resilient community. I myself uh, got my first proper job in the mid-90s, actually working in a homeless shelter. Uh, and for me, that was life-changing because I'd had a pretty good upbringing. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd kind of been protected from the worst aspects of life. Uh, but I did want to kind of give something back. and I was looking for something to do in my life. So I actually worked in this, in, in this place and met for the first time homeless people, people whose lives have been uh, torn apart and had the worst circumstances. Um, and yes, it felt good to help them, but actually I was getting a lot more from them in terms of their, them inspiring me, those incredible people that despite the greatest odds, they actually managed to keep living and persevering. So therefore, for me, kind of set my kind of my pathway in life really which was I always wanted to work within the charity sector or the homelessness sector giving something back um, and it kind of that's what's inspired me ever since and I kind of did a lot of frontline work for 10 years actually mm-hmm. working face to face with some of the most vulnerable people and then I gradually uh, climbed the, the greasy pole and got into management and leadership positions um, because I do have that passion and that passion for change and to lead great organisations. I came to Empowerment in 2017. Uh, At the time, Empowerment, I think, was in need of refreshing and uh, looking for fresh hope and inspiration itself. Um, And a small group of us got together and said, actually, we can do something special alongside the people of Blackpool and the Fowl Coast. Uh, And I've been there ever since. Uh, I love my job. I think it's an incredible privilege to be Chief Executive of Empowerment. Uh, we've now grown into a much bigger organisation. We have about 75 staff um, and lots and lots of amazing volunteers as well. Um, but the most important thing is that the size of the organisation doesn't matter to me in that sense. It's about are we helping people change their lives for the better? That's yeah. all that matters. So you've obviously got that as a driving force and you mentioned there the passion that you've got for the for the project, which obviously this this interview will, will showcase. Yeah. But as somebody who's led, leading quite a large organisation, do you think you could do that in a, in a corporate setting? And, and if so, why, why have you never pursued that? So I think in terms of I'm increasingly impressed by private sector and corporate organisations in terms of that drive, obviously, to be profitable, effective and efficient organisations, but um, still actually making a social and positive difference. In our lives. Yeah. For myself personally, um, I've always thought that in terms of the sector in which I work, um, it's very often it's got the greatest challenges, uh, the most uncertainty. Um, very often we have short-term funding. We don't know how we're going to pay the staff in the next you know, few months, etc. And there's something about me which likes those odds. Yeah. Something about when it's really difficult. Backs against the wall. wall yeah. But actually I love, I love working within that field. And I think it is also about the culture that ultimately 
within our sector, within our organisations, the ultimate drive is to support care for people. And I think that's where I feel at home and that's where the passion comes from. Excellent. So we spoke about in the in the introduction about Elliot's Place and about how a lot of this conversation will yes. centre around that. And yes. um, So I wonder if you could explain a little bit for our viewers how uh, Elliot's Place, the relationship between Elliot's Place and Empowerment, if you will, and how the, the charity came about, if you don't Absolutely, mind. Absolutely, yeah. So the heart of the work of Empowerment is listening to people's voices. We find that actually people who are going through the greatest struggles in life are very rarely listened to. If people aren't listened to, they don't get the help and the support they need. Yeah. And for some time, we were talking within Empowerment about the needs of local young men. Young men who were experiencing some of the worst in terms of mental illness and the difficulties. And they had this greater barrier about this image that we have to project ourselves of men that we can't talk, we can't be vulnerable, we can't share. And that stops us from getting the help we need. We know that actually, even if you share a problem, share something that's troubling with you, with somebody who's trusted, somebody who kind of will take an interest in you, care for you, it may not solve the problem straight away, but actually it can actually help it. You can cope with it. You can get by. One of the things that, you know, kind of really struck was actually young men in our local communities. This is not a problem far off. This is actually in our local communities were getting to the point where they felt there was no other choice than to take their own lives. Now, I feel very passionate that actually we need to create local communities and change the way we do things, that young men in our communities don't feel that lack of choice, that this is the only thing they can do. And I believe powerfully that actually if we create cultures and safe spaces where young men can share, can talk, be vulnerable, and try to cope less at that stiff upper lip thing, et cetera, yeah. and actually share those things, then we can save lives. And not just save lives, we can actually unleash the incredible potential of each of those young men. So we're having conversations about that, like what, what can we do? Because at Pam, we're always thinking what we can do next. Yeah. And, what's the, and I was approached um, several years ago now by uh, the family of Elliot Taylor. And Elliot was a young 24-year-old man who uh, had everything to look forward to uh, on the outside. Um, a popular man, friendly, um, successful in what he was doing. And yet he um, felt he had no choice but to take his own life. That's tragic. And that, mm -hmm. is, that, that is just so sad. But this incredible thing happened that his family, uh, his mum, his dad, and his sister came to see me a week afterwards. And they were absolutely in the midst of their shock and their grief. And I have no idea what they were going through. And yet something in them said, we want to do something to help with the families. We don't want any of the families to go through what we're going through. And we talked about that l current lack of support for young men, both in terms of the culture, which didn't support them to talk, but also well, if they did open up, where are they going to go? Mm. Where are they going to get that help and support? And we have many hard-pressed uh, and a lot of demand for our statutory mental health services. And unfortunately, the experience of many young men is that even if they take that brave step to try and get help, sometimes they have to wait a long time and sometimes just don't get the help and support they yeah. need. So we talked about what could we do together and we come up, came up on this plan of actually developing Elliot's Place. This would be developed and run in the inspired by the memory of Elliot. Elliot is our inspiration. Yeah. 
to help with the young men. And we didn't want to create a service. We didn't want to create a place where you had to make an appointment and you had an assessment. We wanted to create a community, a community of young men, all of whom felt comfortable talking and sharing about their mental illness, about their struggles and vulnerabilities, and they would support each other. And suddenly this incredible fundraising campaign happened. Uh, I've never seen anything like it in terms of the thousands of people who donated. Uh, we've managed to actually secure a bespoke building just for this place, which is the Ellisbeth Which place looks building. fantastic yeah, as well. Yeah, it is fantastic, welcoming space, and that's in the grounds of the, of the empowerment offices in Bispam. But Elliot's Place is also a community. And it is about, we've got two staff there who run a series of activities, drop-ins, in which young men can just be themselves, get the help and support they need, uh, take part in fun and social activities. But the most important thing is that they're in an environment in which talking and sharing about mental health, there will be no stigma, there is no shame, there's no bigotry, no misunderstanding. They will be accepted and welcomed. And we believe that's the fundamental offer we can make to the young men of Blackpool and the Fowl Coast to provide that safe space. It's an absolutely amazing project. Um, since it started then, how many sort of young men have, have you been able to help? And also, what's the process of, say, a young man approaches you, hopefully through this podcast, finds you guys? How do they, you know, what's the journey for them? Yeah. So now we've worked with over 100 young men. Wow. Actually, I checked actually yesterday because I'll be like, yours could be like here. So and it's only a couple of years, that as well. It's absolutely a couple of years. And we could only do so much, and we always set out not to be a big, massive service and project. We wanted to keep it small, local, friendly, and warm. And that's those, those are the kind of the principles behind it. We also didn't want um, a really formal process of referrals where somebody had to present for an assessment and then someone completes a 98-page yeah. document, which is then sent to us. We then assess it. We then ask them exactly the same questions. We By which time it. the problems got worse Absolutely. as well. Absolutely, that's right. And and we know that actually even the process of telling your story again and again and again can be re-traumatised. So actually what we've done is we've, we've advertised and we've promoted uh, the work of Elliot's Place. And what we find is that the most majority of young men who find us actually come from a recommendation from a friend, uh, from somebody they were talking to, or perhaps from an organisation that they've got some relationship to. And... It's as simple as this. They turn up and we make them a brew and we have a chat. Mm. And it's nothing more difficult than that. Yeah. Um, but the person they have a chat with is somebody who understands, somebody who's friendly, who's glad to see them. Yeah. You know, and it's done in the non-clinical surroundings. It's just in a nice, safe, comfortable space. And one from that, we actually want to listen to the story of that young man, to tell them, to tell us their story, as much or as little as they want. But we kind of gently coax those people to kind of start talking about what's troubling them, yeah. where struggles have come from. And from that, they start opening up. Now, it's up to the young man themselves what help further help because if they can just continue with coming the activities, they can come just drop it in for a brew. There is no, we're not, we're not telling them what to do, it's at their pace. Mm. And for some, if this is the first time they've ever opened up, then actually it's going to take some time. They have to keep coming back, building yeah. up the trust and confidence. And then if they do want to kind of get further support from a doctor or from a mental health service or even kind of get into work or try volunteering, our staff and volunteers can help them do that. Yeah. And that's the amazing thing. Because very often people then get to that point, actually, I'm feeling better and I want to make a contribution myself. What can I do? 
And that's a scary thing. So we accompany them on the journey as well. But it's all about what that young man needs yeah. at that time and what's going to work for them as well. Yeah, no, it's amazing. And it is bridging a massive gap yeah. as well. Um, across the website and literature and stuff, there's a phrase um, that I've seen quite a, a bit, um, start small, grow tall. Yeah. So what's the end goal for Elliot's Place? Is, is there one? Um, I think in terms of, I mean, that's start small and end tall is really, really important to us, is that don't promise the world. Don't promise you're going to change everything. Don't promise you can support everybody yeah. because that's not realistic. So start with small. Start with actually doing piecemeal changes. Even if you're working with two or three people at a time, you're working with two or three people at a time. Yeah. Um, we don't know what the end of Elliot's Place will be other than we're going to be here for a long time because the needs need to be met. Mm. What we want to do is actually Elliot's Place be the first of a number of places across Blackburn and Fowl Coast. And we don't need to run them. Young men can run themselves yeah. or other organisations can do them. The point is not being precious about this. We would like in every single ward and area of the Fowl Coast, safe spaces for young men to talk in, talk, drop in and share about their mental mm. health. So we want to start, we call it about a movement. Yeah. And we're just actually, we're at the start of that. There are in other places in the country, we're certainly not the first, but in our local area, especially for young men. And I, th and I think, you know, it's important to say that men of all ages are affected by mental health. Mm -hmm. And of course, women are. All people are affected by mental health. But that starts small is we've got to start somewhere. Yeah. And inspired by Elliot, that's, about, that's really about young men. Because yeah. we also believe that with young men as well, we can actually begin changing the culture, giving them those skills and their confidence to share those yeah. things. So Elliot's place, who knows where it's going to end, but we're not going to stop. And the vision is this, that every single young man on the Fowl Coast can get the help and support they need when they need it, with whom they want it from, mm. and they don't have to wait. It, yeah, it's so important because the, the statistics are pretty grim, as I'm yeah. sure you're yeah. aware. And like you said there, everybody's affected by this, but particularly young men yeah, yeah. in this area. Are, are you finding that with, with the work that you're doing? Yes, and, and I think it's um, the thing with, again, we'll go back to with, with young men, is that it's this culture which we need to break as well. So obviously this is reflected in the behaviours of individual men, but actually, you know, you don't need to kind of look too far on social media um, to see that actually there are perhaps role models emerging mm. for young men who do not see vulnerability or sharing your emotions as a positive yeah. thing. In fact, the very opposite. Mm -hmm. uh, I find that a very worrying trend. Especially the amount it's been, the amount of traction it's actually absolutely, getting. Absolutely, absolutely. And young men who perhaps are looking for that inspiration, looking for that role model, looking for a well, how should I lead my life? And we're very impressionable. You know, young men are very impressionable. I was. I was looking for those role models, looking for, well, who's going to inspire me? And if they actually then make that choice, actually that person there, that's the way I want to lead my life. But that young per that, that role model is saying, don't show vulnerability. Don't, um, don't talk about your mental health. Hmm. You know, man up. All those things. And some and a lot worse and other things worse, as well. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to keep it decent for <laughs> yeah. watching this. Um, we need to very strongly give a counter to that. We need to give a very strong message. Is that and I always say this is that being a man 
you can express in a million and one ways. I'm not bothered about that. Express it in whatever way you want to. But being a man does not have to mean being strong in the traditional sense, not talking and sharing, not being open, not being vulnerable, mm. because that way leads to mental ill health and it leads to young men dying. Mm. So we've got to give that hope and inspiration. And I think it's incumbent on people like myself, who I struggle to describe myself as a young man. <laughs> uh, but what I do know is that um, for most of my life, I was struggling with mental health issues. Okay. At the age of 18, I actually got my first diagnosis of depression. And I didn't tell anybody. And I didn't take the medication. And I just ignored it. Mm. And I then spent the next 20 odd years going through life, outwardly successful, doing all the right things, but inwardly having these, what I now know to be bouts of depression, of anxiety, and of having real struggles, mm. trying to get her out of bed in the morning, having the motivation, and really feeling that sense of dread very often. Mm. It's only when things started to go wrong in my personal life and somebody persuaded me to go and see a counsellor. Well, a counsellor is somebody that I always thought was for other people. Mm. And I'd always encouraged other people to go and see a counsellor. Yeah. But I never went myself. But I went reluctantly. And for the first two sessions, we pretty much spent me saying, actually, this is not for me. This is self-indulgent. Actually, there are people who really need this help. I shouldn't be here. By the third session, and she was a very skilled counsellor, very good. And very, Which does very make good. a difference. It does, absolutely. Um, I'd come to the realisation uh, that actually what I was experiencing was depression mm. and anxiety. Um, and that was an absolute light bulb moment for me. It was an amazing moment, funnily enough, kind of accepting that actually these feelings I had, the struggles I had, because I had this mantra that life is tough and you've just got to get on with it. Yeah. Life is tough and you've just got to... And now life is tough. Mm. And sometimes we have to show it and get yeah. on with it. Some of that's true. But... And also coping. I was a brilliant coper, but I coped miserably. Yeah. You know? And actually what you start doing, that, that sadness or that, 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 I suppose, that feeling, that mis feeling of miserableness and dread, you then communicate to others. You know, those nearest to you kind of get, yeah. experience that as well. So from that, I uh, actually went to the doctors and got a prescription and I started taking antidepressants, which I'd absolutely been against before. Within about a month, my mood was started lift, lifting. I was getting into the habit of talking and sharing. And I came to the conclusion not long after that is that I am not going to ever deny that I have depression and anxiety. It doesn't define me. You know, I have a lot more to me in life, but actually I'm not going to live with the shame. Mm. I'm not going to live with the stigma. I'm going to talk. Now, I don't go talk to random strangers myself, <laughs> but actually anybody who asks me, I will say that to this day, Age 51 in 2023, I still have a, a diagnosis of uh, mild to moderate depression with anxiety. I am still medicated and I still regularly go, and, go to talk to, uh, to talking therapies. Yeah. I also lead a very successful organization and I love my job and I'm able to function and do all those things that everybody else does. Mm. I also know myself that if I feel I'm slipping, I talk and share or I have good people around me who notice mm -hmm. I also, um, 
I run a lot and cycle a lot and try and get out in the fresh air as much as I can because I know that's good for me and it lifts my mood as well. And a lot of Elliot's places, physical exactly activities. Exactly the though. same thing, absolutely. So all those ingredients, actually, I can't change my diagnosis. I, I hope one day it goes. You know, I, I, don't, I don't want it to stay around, yeah. but I manage, I manage it. But fundamentally is that I talk and I share. And it's the power of that that I know that my life is so much better than it was. So much better. Because, I, because the shame and the stigma, pretty much gone. Yeah. You know, I can talk here. What I've learned from my own lived experience then is actually the way to actually rebuild young men's lives is actually at a younger age. I don't want them to get into the 40s and 50s before they feel they can open. I don't want them to actually feel there's no other choice but to end their life. There is another life possible, Mm. and we need to model that and inspire young men into living that life. Because ultimately, we want the best lives for people. We want people to really have amazing lives, and I think it's possible for everyone. No, it's an incredible message. You mentioned there about lived experience. So we're going back 30 years there to when you got your initial diagnosis. So you'll have seen the good, the bad, and the ugly of the the system, as it were. How important is that and the other guys that work on Elliot's Place and in Empowerment in terms of transferring that to help the guys that come through the door? Yeah. Lived experience for me is the game changer in how we do things in terms of services and projects and helping and supporting. Yeah. That's not to say that people without lived experience don't have a positive contribution. Of course, we all have a positive contribution. But what does that lived experience give us? It gives us, I think, compassion because you know what it's like. And therefore, you use that power that you've got of the pain and the suffering you've yourself experienced to actually say, I don't want you to go through the same by yourself. Yeah. I am by your side. So lived experience comes passion, a real passion to help and support. Mm. And it's not a job, it's a life, it's a lifestyle. It's a calling almost. Absolutely, yeah. I would absolutely call it a a calling, absolutely. I think the other thing about lived experience is what we're finding is that when the person who's actually kind of providing the support um, opens up a little bit about themselves. Now, when I first started in services and, and, and both in delivering services and managing them, we were always taught, don't share anything of yourself. Yeah. Don't, 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 don't show anything. It's all about the person. So, you know, people would ask me questions. Oh, Mike, do you have any children? Well, I did. And I used to say, well, I can't talk about that. I'm here to support you. Right. What we find is actually that's not good at all for forming a trusting relationship. So, of course, everybody who works in our sector, they have to keep themselves safe and this stuff they don't need to share. But if we open up a little about our own lived experience, this magical thing happens. That person on the other side feels they can open up to you. Yeah. Why? Because actually they have this feeling that you're going to understand. Trust. Trust. That's the word. You're not going to judge them because you've been through that yourself. Yeah. So both in terms of the passion it gives you and also in terms of that ability to make trusting relationships. But the other aspect about people with lived experience is actually they've got lived experience both of conditions and of mental illness, but they've also got lived experience of services. And therefore, for me, they have uh, that lived, not just experience, a lived expertise mm. in how services and support should be delivered. Yeah. So the exciting thing is, is that people with experience are leading the transformation of how we support yeah. people. So for me, lived experience has to remain an absolutely crucial and essential element of all projects going forward. At Empowerment, we took a decision some time ago to actually stop really asking people about their qualifications 
um, although they're important, but what life experience did you have, which means you want to come and work at Empowerment and support other people. And we now have many, many people on our payroll who have lived experience of mental illness, lived experience of domestic abuse, lived experience of being in and out of prison, of being on the streets. And they have turned their own lives around with the right support. Mm. And now that we were harnessing that energy and empowerment to help and help and support other people. As well. you've, you've talked there about the perhaps negative online influences. Yeah. Well, yeah. then if somebody who's got that lived experience exactly. can, if they can inspire the Absolutely. people the opposite Absolutely. way. And um, yeah. obviously you guys are making a massive impact locally. I don't know if you work with, with businesses particularly. This is obviously a business-related yeah, yeah. podcast. Is there anything you think or that you've seen that you think businesses could be doing more of or, or be doing better to help people with their mental health and, and engage more on this, this issue? Yeah, and I think, you know, there's, there's organisations, and I'm not just saying this, but Danborough, which have impressed me in terms of that very enlightened uh, and very compassionate attitude yeah. towards me mental ill health. Um, there are some fantastic employers on the Fowl Coast. Businesses and corporations want the best staff. Simple as. They want the best people to come and work for them. I believe passionately that some of those best people will have mental illness. Some of the best absolutely. people. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Now, if you have a track record of a mental illness and you see a job being advertised, perhaps even the dream job, perhaps even the job of kind of an organisation you've heard lots about and I want to go and work for them, then I know for a fact that people will be thinking, well, should I tell them about, actually, I do have depression, or a few years ago I had to take some time off because I actually went through a really bad time. And we know that people sometimes don't tell the truth because they're fearful. Hmm. They're fearful of telling the whole truth about themselves. Well, what if I tell them? Is that employee going to say, no, you can't have the job? Or even if they found out when I was actually employed by them, would they then actually ask me to leave? And these are very real fears. And I think we miss out potentially on some of the best people. Mm. So I think, you know, in terms of the smarter employers who are increasing in number are those who say very publicly and openly is actually we will be a friendly and supportive place for anybody who has a history of mental illness. Yeah. And I think if businesses can communicate that, both in terms of the websites, the publicity and promotion, but especially when they're recruiting, to say we welcome, we welcome, we positively want applications from people with a history of mental illness and that when you come for an interview, you will be treated with kindness and respect. Listen, you'll still need to impress us. Mm. You'll still need to be the best person for the job. And people such as myself don't want that kind of special treatment. We want to be just given a, a, an equal chance. Yeah. That's all. I think if then you can communicate that, you're going to get the best people. You're going to get people applying with history of mental illness. And actually when they're in the organisation, sometimes they will need a bit of flexibility. Sometimes they will need to be able to share or talk about their issues in the workplace. And what we found is actually if you do that, actually your sickness levels go down, your retention levels are driven up, and you get the best people. So I think anybody kind of in terms of working on the Fab Coast and is, is managing or leading private company i'll give very serious consideration to say actually what more can we do to actually attract and retain those people with mental illness um, because your business will be better as a result of it i would say absolutely and a bit more broadly this one if you had a magic wand to to change one thing about mental health support nationwide 
as somebody who's, who's steeped in all this, yes. what, what would you say that would be? Simple as is that in terms of, I know there's always cost pressures for all aspects of, if we talk about the NHS, yeah. but actually billions upon billions upon billions of pounds are spent on treating physical conditions. My vision and my dream would be that as a society and as a nation, we decided that actually we would treat mental illness with the same seriousness as we do physical health conditions. And that would be a massive, beyond belief, expansion of services, of support, of funding going in long term. Nobody, when somebody, you have a golden opportunity, when someone actually gets to that point where they say, actually, I need help with this. We need to respond quickly. Mm. Part of that is no one should wait longer than 48 hours for support. No one should have to be on a waiting list for three to six months. So the, so the magic wand is we as a society actually say, for the first time in our history, we're going to treat this with the equal seriousness we do physical health. Conditions. And do you think we're way off that at the minute? We are way off that at the moment. But I think we are moving because I'm, I'm an eternal optimist. I always think things are getting better. Yep which doesn't always make yourself popular in some aspects. <laughs> when I look back in terms of how far we've come in the 30 years, when I first went, well, I'll tell you a story. When I f- went to that doctor's, because yeah. I'm pretty much been made to go by my, by my mom to doctors because I just knew there was something not right with me. Yeah. And uh, I went to that doctor's appointment and uh, 18, didn't know, know anything other than I felt really bad about life. Um, and I said, the uh, doctor said, well, what's wrong, what's wrong? And uh, I said, my mum thinks I've got depression. I don't think I have, but my mum thinks I've got depression. And he looked at me and he said, in my experience, son, young men have depression because of two reasons. Either it's a woman or it's money. Which one is it? Well, it's neither. (laughs) He lost me. Yeah. He completely lost me because it didn't make any sense to me. Yeah. So... He, he just, without any, there's no further conversation. He wrote out a prescription, gave me some tablets, and I walked out. And I didn't talk about my mental health issues probably for about another 27 years. I was going to say, that probably put you way back, didn't absolutely, it? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So when I look back, so when I look back to that time, which didn't seem that long ago to me and to where we are now, we are in a much better position. We are. We've progressed a long way, but we still have so far to go. And going back to, you know, what I said at the beginning and about Elliot's place and why we need that. If the vision is that no young man has to take their own life because there is an alternative, there's a different way. Yeah. We have to keep going yeah. until that becomes a reality. Absolutely. Is, is there a postcode lottery element to this as well? I mean, why, for instance, is Blackpool's statistics so high comparatively with other, other towns? So it is a postcode lottery. Um and I think, you know, Blackpool also did experience um, a huge reduction in its funding over the last 10 years, uh, which meant that services have been really hard-pressed and there's been high demand. Mm-hmm. We also struggle in Blackpool and Fargo sometimes to retain our best staff. So there are some real struggles there. But also Blackpool and our areas we know is still the place of hope for a lot of people. People are going through struggles across the country, especially in the Northwest. And there's this tradition that Blackpool... Is a place where they had a great holiday, where they enjoyed themselves. Mm-hmm. So when people are going through the toughest of times, very often they make the decision to come and live in Blackpool because things will be better there. Um, unfortunately, the reality is different. Mm-hmm. Um, and those problems which they had 
living elsewhere, they actually bring them Come to with the landlords. Them. Therefore, we do have this, I suppose, this larger than the national average number of people coming into Blackpool with those, with those mental health conditions. Um, but what I would say, and I would always say this, is that that's true. I think what is equally true is that Blackpool is also fortunate in having some incredible people who want to make a difference yeah, as well. Such as yourself. Well, that's for other people <laughs> to say. But um, I think we can't be naive to say that actually Blackpool, when you look at the statistics and the national figures, we do have higher than above average, you know, for in terms of physical ill health, mental ill health, suicide rates, mm -hmm. they are higher. Yeah. But that what that means for me and people like me is we just need to do more yeah. and keep working until actually Blackpool is a place where anybody with a mental health condition gets the help and the support they need and can rebuild their lives. And, I, and, and I'm really passionate about when people have kind of got to that point where actually they feel a bit better, where they feel a bit more in control of their own life, that's the opportunity for them to give something back. Yeah. And I see this as a cycle where actually the support you want to receive, you then give back to others. And yeah. that's a good society. Um, and everybody can do that. You know, I'm only the person I am and where I've, what I've achieved in life because of the people who helped me along the way. Okay. And I think we all need to acknowledge that we've all got a role to play. Even a positive conversation, even a smile, even a, an encouraging word for somebody can be the change that can actually change somebody's person's life for yeah. life. And we'd all need to do that. No, that's a really important message. There is a sense of irony when you're talking about health statistics and there's a siren going off in the that's background. Okay. We'll that's just gloss over that. Um, you mentioned on, again, some of your, the personal bios that yeah. I've read around yourself. Is it so social pedagogy? ご注意。ご注意。ご注意。ご注意。ご注意。ご注意。ご注意。ご注意。ご注意。ご注意。ご注意。ご注意。ご注意。ご注意。ご注意。ご注意。ご注意。ご注意。ご注意。ご注意。
I'm here uh, if you need help and support. Now go and do your best. Were you in, can I ask, a position of leadership when you started the course? So did that philosophy completely change or were you perhaps practicing some of the elements? I was practicing some of the elements, but actually I I call myself uh, a leader in recovery. So so what it happened was it gave me a voice and articulation about how to lead because um, previously, um, and this was linked actually with my approach to mental health and talking is actually as a leader, you didn't show vulnerability. As a leader, you knew all the answers. As a leader, you kind of, it was your job to tell everybody what to do. And you find after a while that actually doesn't work, actually. People that around you uh, don't feel trusted. They don't feel empowered. They don't, they don't grow and develop themselves. So for me, it kind of really inspired me into saying, actually, well, if I want to be uh, this great leader, this amazing leader that I want to be, I want to be actually, you need to trust people through relationships and they need to trust you. So there's far less hierarchy. The book stop still, still stops with me. Still got to make tough decisions at times. But actually leading now is much more fun because actually I can trust all these amazing yeah. people around me just to get on with the job yeah. and up there when, when they're needed. Human learning systems um, is very much about how we um, deliver and develop services. And human learning systems reminds people that at the heart of it is a, is a messy, complex human being. So we can't have one size fits all box standard services. Yeah. It's got to be wrapped around the complexity of that, of that of that person. The learning is about we never fully get all the answers, so we shouldn't pretend that we have the answers to everything. Everything is a learning moment, and, in, and, and especially failure. So things go wrong. We get things wrong, and what we shouldn't do is cover up. What we shouldn't do is deny. We should admit them, yeah. you know, because we are human. But we need workplace cultures which actually encourage that. So I make, you know, it's not a competition, but I on day on day I will make more mistakes than anybody else. Okay, so if anybody comes to me with one of their, well, Mike, I've done this, I've done that. I've usually done about seventeen things <laughs> a day, probably yeah. worse than them. The point I'm trying to make is, is that actually that learning thing is what did we learn from? What actually can we learn? Okay, that wasn't great. That didn't work. So what can we learn from that? Not blaming, not shaming people. Actually, mm-hmm. what do we learn? From and then the system is really actually, we have a whole complex of different services and projects all helping different people. Very often they don't talk to each other. Very often they don't share information. Sometimes they're in rivalry and competition yeah. for each other. The systems have to actually be based on relationships as well. Everybody within this community, whether you're from the public sector, whether you're from the charity sector or from the private sector have positive relationships with each other to help and support them. yeah you know people working for danbro i want them to know about um, the support we provide at empowerment i also want the people at empowerment to know the services that yeah. you provide for local people it's well, cooperative, it's cooperative. It? so it's all about relationships yeah right? I think that's really important because there's the kind of an ethos of the higher you climb up say a corporate ladder because the stakes are higher, the less mistakes you can make kind of thing. But I think if you can, if as a leader, you can show that everybody's fallible. That's right. Um, so in all your years working on community projects and in, in organisations like Empowerment, what would you say is the most important thing or the biggest thing you've learned about people? Um, that you never really know them and that the biggest mistake is to make decisions about their life thinking you know them. So the thing that I always learn is, get to know that person or get to know those people. How do you do that? 
safe, trusting environments. Everything comes back to relationship. Now, if that person feels safe with you, they then feel more open to talk and to share. And then for us to kind of develop and deliver those community projects, they're more likely to work yeah. because they're actually based around that people. 20 years ago, and I've always been an ideas person. I've always known, you know, I'm always coming up with ideas, 90% of which are not great, but actually I get very excited about them. But they were always my ideas, which then we kind of created a project and will support people that way. Yeah. And then I was surprised when they didn't always work. Well, I'd never actually asked the people who, who, who were trying to help about what their ideas were. So that's the biggest learning for myself is, is find out what that person needs through trust. And then everything comes back to that lived experience, the relationship. The themes are all the same. Yeah. This is not, none of this is complicated. None of this is actually clever. Yeah. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Absolutely. Perfect. Absolutely. And in a fast, you know, vastly evolving world, both in terms of technology, which helps us to do incredible things. And, and, you know, these are, I see them as positive advancements. But as human beings, we will always need other human beings. Yeah. And we need to act like human beings who are kind, who are welcoming, and actually take an interest in people. Yeah. And especially we are at our best as human beings when we journey alongside someone going through their toughest times yeah. and we see them come through those tough times and we see them grow and de develop and flourish. That's the best feeling ever and we need more of that. That's such a good answer. The, one of our final questions is one that we ask, ask everybody. So how would you define success, both from a personal perspective and in terms of what's usually a business, but obviously for, yeah. for, for your organisation, both Elliot's Place and, and Empowerment? Yeah. In terms of success, then actually for me, and it's an empowerment is is not the size or the growth of the organisation. It's about our ability to genuinely change people's lives for the better. I've gone through all my life, all sorts of success indicators, key performance indicators. All that matters to me is that somebody can tell me their story, that when they came to empowerment, they were going through their worst times, that they were struggling, that they'd given up hope. And yet they met someone from empowerment and within weeks and months they had fresh hope and their life has been changed. That is the only definition of yeah. success. When they themselves tell me my life has changed for the better. And then, and then the icing on the cake is when they tell me, and do you know what? I'm volunteering at a project myself now because I want to help others. Yeah. That's success. It's that circle of life element Absolutely, to that, yeah. isn't there? Um, so last but not least then, hopefully there's people watching this who... Well, I say hopefully, but you know, you know, what I'm yeah. getting at who might need that that yeah. support. If there is, yeah. how would how do they go about getting that? How do they get in touch with, with you guys? Whether that's for empowerment, because obviously we mentioned in our introduction that you do other projects as well, yeah, yeah. but yeah. perhaps specifically for for Elliot's place. I think the, the easiest way in terms of empowerment and for Elliot's place in any of our projects is really if you are um, familiar with the internet and with social media, it's just Google Empowerment Blackpool. And you'll find all our website and our social media presence, and you'll quickly find a pathway in terms of how to access our support. You can pop into our uh, empowerment base, which is at 333 Bispam Road, Blackpool. Opposite Moor Park. Opposite Moor Park. Um, you can ring us, uh, you can email us, you can drop us a line on Facebook. There's 101 ways. Whichever way suits you best, please just get in contact. What I guarantee, and it's a guarantee that we have to make across empowerment, is if you make that brave step to get in contact with us, you will be welcomed with kindness and with warmth and we will want to have a chat with you because we want to help. 
So please do get in contact with us. No, thank you so much for that, Mike. And thank you so much for coming in as well. Really appreciate talking to you. And it's, it's been fascinating hearing about it. Hopefully, as we say, it's, it's helped a few people as well. So thank you very much. much. Thank you. Thank you.